Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. Before starting today's conversation, I wanted to just request if you're going to be at Solar Power International here in Salt Lake City at the end of September to please reach out to us through cleancapital.com. We'd love to connect in person, whether it be about the podcast or about Clean Capital and about some of the work that we've got going on or if you've got projects you're looking to sell. Now, this is a great opportunity to meet our Clean Capital team. For today's conversation, we're talking to Mike Casey, who's the president and founder of clean tech public relations firm TigerCom. TigerCom is the longest running comms firm focused on clean energy uh, and the clean economy. We talk, Mike's got a great background, and we really talk today about some of the work he's seeing from some of his premier clients, but also what leaders can do in their companies to really better drive marketing to engage both stakeholders they need to engage on the business-to-business side or policymakers as well. But we also talk about the need for the industry today to really step up our communications efforts so we're no longer seen as just an alternative energy but a mainstream energy and a player here to stay. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mike, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only Podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about your background. You, you grew up in the west side of Cleveland. You got into democratic politics, worked for folks like Governor Dukakis when he ran for president, and again for uh, Clinton when he won in, in 92. How did you first decide to dive into the political space? The career trajectory that I'm on now started 30 plus years ago on the first textbook I read in the first college course that I took. It was Lester Brown's The 29th Day. He was then, and I perhaps still is, the foremost environmental trends counter in the world. And his book, and it was one of many that he had and went on to write, essentially said that as a species, we are, we're unsustainable in the way we're operating as a global economy. That is, we're living off the natural resource base principle rather than the interest. We're treating our pantry like a toilet. And it's not going to go well. And I, as I read this book, I felt called to do something about this problem and began to think about the ways that I could devote myself to doing that. And I, over the next year in my college experience, crafted the sense that politics, the intersection of media, politics, and policy was where I could make the biggest contribution. So I volunteered as part of a sophomore college course for a state senator named Michael Schwartzwalder. Great guy, progressive, visionary. Did you go to school in Ohio or? Yeah, Ohio State. And oh, yeah. Targeted for defeat by a little, no- a then little-known political director of the RNC named Lee Atwater, who turned oh, wow. the Willie Horton-style ad, ver- racist, underhanded, and Schwartzwalder lost. And that night, people were at the party election night party, very upset. He had a lot of true believers and there's a lot of tears. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to learn the rules of the road here. And if the other side is going to be aggressive and tactically innovative, I will learn to do that too. 
So I, I then went into politics and I spent roughly 10 years in politics working at the state, federal, national level, in and out, in government and in campaigns. I then did 12 years in the environmental movement, uh, running the national comms operations for two different groups. But along the way in that second chunk of my career, I had three slow revelations. One, we were trying to beat something with nothing. We were saying no, but we didn't have a clean economy alternative to offer. Number two, we had a skills and attitude deficit. We did not collect best practices. We didn't train people. People who were doing environmental communications tend to be second career reporters. They really didn't understand it's a fundamentally different profession. Right. And we also were bringing plastic forks to knife fights, to borrow a David Roberts saying. Yeah. And it was, so it was combined what I call the disease of principled loserism belief that as long as you're principled, if you get your butt kicked, it's okay. And I thought, no, it's not okay. Because right. guys like Michael, Michael Schwarzwalder lose it, lose. And elections matter. And policy. Seeing matter. that more today than ever. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. And, and so actually, America is not this unbreakable, unbreakably strong thing. You actually can crash the plane. And it doesn't take much to crash the plane because this is a unique success in the human experience of peace and prosperity and human self-actualization. And we have achieved something that nobody else has ever achieved in the history of the world. And it definitely can be screwed up by idiots, morons, and demagogues. So anyway, I'm digressing, but I spent this, that was the second of three deficits. And the third one was we had an infrastructure deficit. Right. Not have ways to deliver this alternative narrative because the trade associations for renewables were very weak at the time. This is in the early 2000s. Right. And I thought, man, this is just, this is crazy. So I decided I would try to, I'd find a way to start something or to join an organization that would devote itself to fixing those three problems, closing those three gaps. And the last choice on the list was starting a firm. I literally had the list in my drawer <laughs> home. Right. Scratched them off as I went through the 2000s and finally said, "Well, okay, I guess I'm starting a firm. You want some something done right? Do it yourself." So I started this firm, and 14 years later, we are the number one clean economy Marcom and public affairs firm. We service the wind, solar, battery storage, and micro mobility spaces. We help companies succeed with their their case making to customers, investors, and policymakers. So I want to come back to TigerCom in a few minutes. I want to sort of talk a little bit about first of all, your 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 personal transformation at that time is is really interesting. And I think what you've hit something we actually talk about or I talk about a lot on the show is, you know, how we need to be out communicating. one of the reasons we started this podcast is we need to be communicating better as an industry. And I, you know, one of the things that I've been really focused on, if you look back, you know, since say 2008, when you had the American Recovery Act start to push forward. Technology began to to align and mature. You know, solar panels weren't a new thing, but the policies are starting to get in place at the national level and the state level for them to move. Finance began to move. We've now hit a phenomenal curve of growth. But the mindset in a lot of the industry today continues to be that of an alternative energy source. 
versus a mainstream player in the market. And we look at what's happening with, you know, we've got good leaders developing at a solar energy industry association, an ACOR and AWEA. In other words, we're still missing the American Petroleum Institute side of clean energy here, where we're punching folks in the teeth to move our stuff forward. And I feel like we're now maturing into a, a industry that has to do that. We talked a little bit before the, sh- the show about your paradox of clean energy marketing article that you wrote. Can you talk a little bit about, about that and how it sort of ties into where we are today? Yeah, my um, colleague, Sarah Lippincott, and I wrote something called No Time for Legacy. It's our one of our foundational books, and it essentially says that a lot of clean economy companies are engaged in B2B sales. And if you number line the economy from put it at one end, you put B2C companies that are very, have a very light bricks and mortar presence. They have point of purchase websites like Amazon, like Thrive Markets. These companies have to do online digital communications well, or they would never have grown and they would die very quickly. At the very far other end of the economy are large B2B companies that are that have long lead time products. So flexible technology turbines that take five years to sell, wind farms that take several years to sell. And down at that end, there has not been a historical reason, a historical imperative to get digital Marcom right. Because you can get pretty good success or you've been able to get pretty good success by traditional retail sales contact. But the problem is that the marketing research literature is increasingly clear that past an impulse purchase of cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, Americans, if it's got any dollar amount attached to it, are increasingly relying in the early part of their purchase decision on online search and content. Hmm. This is true in the big space. It's true for your firm. It's true for large wind and solar OEMs. And it's definitely true for renewable energy project developers. And the book is a case for for taking the best of B2C, point of purchase website companies practices and adopt them over to the B2B space to catch up with the reality of Americans buying patterns. Interesting. And so do you feel like a lot of the folks in the clean energy space are then focusing too much on the traditional media yes. um, and focusing on you know, putting, their, putting their message out through, I mean, you don't, one, ads is probably the wrong term because you don't even see that many of them, but whether we're trying to influence policymakers and others through their letters to the editors and their op-eds versus sort of targeted campaigns? Yeah, the, the two glass of wine on a Saturday night dream for a lot of clean economy company executive teams is my profile piece of the Wall Street Journal. And what we have seen in the last right. 10 years, definitely the last five years, almost in a hockey stick graph steepness, is the decline in the importance of what we call organic eyeballs. So what I mean by that, geeky PR term, is that it used to be, when I started my career, Americans consumed content from, in much more predictable ways, 
from far fewer, much larger outlets. And that was true whether it was at a local local media market or at a national at a national company. Right. Matter. You now have basically taken the media vase and you've dropped it on the floor and shattered it into lots of pieces. You still have the same amount of porcelain, but it just is in a lot more smaller pieces. So what I mean by this is we now have the dec- we have the decline of the importance of one big story in the Wall Street Journal. You have the rise in importance of lots of website chatter from Seeking Alpha, Motley Fool, et cetera. So when you get sustained attention in more smaller places, it adds up to what that one Wall Street Journal story used to get you. Right. And it eclipses what one Wall Street Journal now gets you. Because most, if you look at your own media consumption habits, I'll bet you, you don't get, you don't spend nearly the amount of time reading news on dead trees dropped at the end of your driveway. No. You're reading aggregators. Right. So we're, we're an information hummingbird culture where we sip and we fly to something else. We sip and we fly to something else. And my point here is that clean economy companies are not, they're, they're living too much in a legacy mindset that mainstream media is the lion's share of important attention getting. Don't get me wrong. It still is important, but its role has shifted one from driving attention in and of itself to giving you attention you can do something with in what we call second bounce eyeballs. In other words, let's say that there is a Wall Street Journal profile done on you and your firm, the number of new investors you would get out of that would be surprisingly small. But if you take that Wall Street Journal profile and you did something on your website with it, and you did some social advertising around it, and you did a whole bunch of LinkedIn messaging using the Wall Street Journal stories excerpts to a bunch of prospects that are in the midway through the sales funnel, you would get much more traction. So my point is, our companies are neglecting building program to do something with the big nameplate pieces of attention that they want so much to get. And some of them deserve it, but many of them, you know, if you're, if you're a startup, you know, you're living in this NPR guy Raz interview mentality. Oh, you know, right. if we just hit the bank shot. You know, we hit that. I would say John Powers experts only mentality, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, like it's everybody listens to, yep. you know, the lightning strike startup that grew big because it, it rolled the dice and it got some free PR and that picked it up. And so I, we get calls. I still get calls. I'd say a couple of times a month, we get an out, we get an inbound lead from a company that's got a really cool technology and they are as they should be in love with the coolness of that technology. But you know, they, what they're banking on, they want to pay us a little tiny bit of money to get them the million dollar Wall Street Journal story. And I don't want to tell them, dude, there's no such thing as a million dollar Wall Street yep. Journal anymore. It just doesn't happen. So with, this is really interesting. So with, with, first of all, this is the way that political communications is going. You're seeing of the campaigns space, 100%. you know, there's no doubt about it. The, the, all the fights over the Facebook data that happened in the last major election was because they were trying to target these folks, not because they're trying to put in mailers that went to their house or, you know, the CNN ads as much, but if you're a clean energy developer or you, maybe you're even a technology company, 
right? That that is sort of emerging in this space. How do you then approach this? How do you put together a sort of targeted campaign to help raise awareness? Because in the reality is your target audience, unless you're a consumer-based, you know, platform that's selling you know, solar panels to, you know, Sunrun or whoever on people's rooftops, you are focused on, you know, sort of CNI, right? Or uh, mm-hmm. local developers. So, you know, how do you sort of devise that more targeted campaign to influence those players? Great question. And it's one that we answer in the second part of that, that book. But essentially, the good news and the opportunity in innovating a new B2B Marcom approach is that the reality for B2C point-of-purchase website companies is they're marketing to millions. Right. They have to rely on algorithms to feed the website visitor people who bought this product also bought this. Right? That's an algorithm-derived suggestion. But B2B clean economy companies market to hundreds or thousands. That is exactly. our typical company that we are working for if you take the total headcount on decision-making chains within their customer prospect list, it's usually no more than 2,500 people. Right. And that, that then allows us to go from prototypes, personas, to profiling. So if you are one of the 2,500 people that I want to market to, the good news about digital technology is we're moving ever closer to be able to custom communicate to John. And we can do that now, this is the heart of the answer to your question, by having tight integration with Marcom and sales efforts. When, because as you, if you're a client of mine and you come to our website, as you move down the sales funnel, we've optimized our website so we can see you behaving in certain ways on our site. Oh, John downloaded this ebook. That's a signal for us, me, as the as the retail sales guy here at the firm, to reach out and contact you. John, notice you downloaded our book. Would like to get your thoughts on this. And if your needs are addressed in this book and by our approach, I'd like to have a conversation with you about it. But you don't you don't want to take or make contact with me until you have decided through searching content, your own early decision-making to that you're ready for such a conversation. So this is the point. The marketing literature is showing us that up to 60% of the B2B purchase decision, the early stage of that is being made through online search and content before the seller, before the buyer will take or make contact with the seller. That is a key principle. And it's the one that is the most ignored in clean economy companies, marketing approaches. Yeah, I mean, I can hear myself, I can hear colleagues who are, you know, CEOs of sort of a mid-tier clean energy company say, you know, I've got a sales force out selling this stuff, and you know, they think of marketing. I think it's pretty common is is, is PR, right, yep. and not in how it ties in. So when you, if you were gonna, you know, I look at some of your client base, right, Vestas, Renew Financial, Apex is an amazing company in, in Charlottesville. You know, how are their CEOs thinking of this differently? And, you know, if you were stepping into sort of lead uh, growing sort of emerging company, you know, how would you structure a team sort of to go after this? One, I would make sure that my head of marketing and my head of sales see their jobs as absolutely intertwined. Yeah. You know, we've seen companies 
in the past where the heads of those two operations, they barely talk to each other. Exactly. Yep. And it's insane. I mean, if you're a CEO, why the hell do you have marketing if its purpose is not to, to support commercial outcomes? And in a digital age, that is a much more, that line has gone from dotted to solid. That is, there's cause and effect. So what I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all of corporate America needs to take its v- SVP for marketing and put him or her under you know, the SVP for sales. But I'm saying it's an existential question in digital age when we can increasingly obs- digitally observe customer behavior, the purpose of marketing thing has to be updated. It must be to engage discrete groups of people to help them move from awareness attitude to behavior change that i.e. moving down the sales funnel toward greater and greater readiness to buy the product and the tracking of it is critical intelligence for sales forces so to stay with the answer to your question one i would make sure that marcom sees that we're not doing general awareness because there is no such thing right and anytime i hear corporate communications teams issue use the words general public I know we have legacy thinking, absolutely 100% of the time. There's no such thing as a general public, and there hasn't been since I was in graduate school in 1986. It's, you know, we have a country of 325 million human beings walking around the United States of America. And I want you to tell me what the general public look like. No such thing. There's discrete demographic and psychographic groups. And if we, so the general audience identification is the refuge of the marketing lazy. Interesting. So with the limited time we've got left, I'd like to sort of talk for a second about sort of TigerCom and if you can give sort of a case study maybe of what you guys are doing, that'd be interesting to the audience sort of in this space. And then I do want to step back and sort of talk about the broader climate and clean energy fight and the, the play that communication has into it. Okay. So you want a case study. Let's think about, it. I got a- Or just an example of if people are thinking through like, how would I engage- a firm like TigerCom, and why would I engage a firm like Target? Oh, so this is where this is where I get to pitch our services. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the way, I, I ask that because I think a lot of people see this as you know we're going to engage a PR firm right before we make a big announcement to do a press release, right? And I think that's the the standard yeah. traditional mentality, right? Which I disagree with, but I I think that's sort of your guys your guys that's not your approach. No, that's that's a V eight moment. You're slapping your forehead. I mean, yeah. it's just. You just want to kind of, for people who are at that stage, you just kind of want to wrap your arms around them and say, "Here, come here, I love you, sit down, let me have a heart to heart with you. Because it's legitimate to hire firms to provide you surge capacity in the rare times when your communications needs exceed your in-house communications capacity. That's legitimate. But you should not... The idea of public relations really should be updated to view it as attention worthiness, attention generation, and audience engagement. And I'm using that term with great care because we did the first ever analysis of the pushback, the online pushback that wind developers are getting around wind farms and which companies are doing what to counter online the pushback they're getting from NIMBYs. So we're seeing now half a billion dollar power plants basically get killed 
because 100 people in a, are in a room in a rural community objecting to it, right? right. It's a loud minority yelling down the silent majority that wants this job creating, power creating, revenue creating, iconic structure in their communities. And what we found is that companies for a variety of reasons have largely ceded the digital space to the NIMBYs. Interesting. So, you know, you've got three quarters of Americans want 100% renewable energy, but it's those 25% that are getting targeted by the anti-developers and then showing up and voicing their community center. I'll do you one better. Yeah. Lawrence Livermore National Labs, Berkeley National Labs, did a, shortly after the Gatehouse media hatchet job, written by, not kidding you, written by a summer intern, asserting that there was this rash of health concerns of oppressed communities that wind farms were keeping people up at night and it was strobing and flashing and all yeah. that stuff. Lawrence Livermore National Labs did the definitive study of people living within five miles, three miles, one mile, and a half mile from wind farms. People living within a half mile of wind farms, the vast majority said they were very satisfied or satisfied living next to one. So you go from a stupid, poorly executed hatchet job with no factual basis and more stretches to, to give an entire gymnastics team a grind pole yeah. versus the definitive study that actually talked to people in a, a methodical way and they found a very different experience. So anyway, coming back to what we're talking about, I mean, we know definitively from the data that people who end up living near wind farms very close within a half mile vast majority of them, no problems, very satisfied, actually think it's, it's, it's pretty, right? It's, it's kind of, it's cool. So I do want to step back for a second and, and with the limited time we have left and ask, so if, if you were able to look at sort of the clean energy advocacy space today, right? And bring one change to bear to really help this industry take the next step and move from the alternative energy mindset to the American Petroleum Institute mindset, what would you do? I'll give you a general, I'll give you a figurative answer and I'll give you a specific answer, but let me, there's a, there's a slight challenge to the premise of the question. Too many of our companies are relying on their association dues, right? Get them everything. And you know, there's, it reminds me of a joke I heard from my dad who was in the Marines. You know, there was a joke that, you know, the beatings will continue until the morale improves. <laughs> right, right. So it's just like, you know, look, you get what you pay for. And if you look at the small amount of dues that our companies are paying these associations and then they're beating on them because they're not giving them enough, it's just kind of like, well, I mean, is any trade association perfect? No, but I know the three major trade associations in the clean economy space quite well. We've worked for all of them. And they're pretty good. I mean, yeah, they are. We looked at we looked for waste inefficiency and and room for improvement at API. We'd find way more of it, even though they got massive budgets. So, John, my my challenge to the premise is not that our trade associations are perfect, but is to say that our companies have are engaged in magical thinking. They think that small dues to association adds up to enough collective resources that we can get our job done, and that's not true. You got to do both. So the disruptor's challenge is that when you're creating a new sector, 
within an industry dominated by powerful incumbents, you must overinvest proportionally to those who are creating a new industry. Google created a new industry. Wind energy is creating a new sector. And there is a fundamental difference because, because incumbent sectors see you coming. And they're bigger. They've been around for 150, 200. We've been burning coal in this, in this world for 250 years. Coal industry sees you coming. The gas industry sees you coming. They've got enough bandwidth to interrupt your disruption of their finances. No one was doing that to Google. So right. You don't, have, you don't have an unfettered operating environment. So if you have a disruptor's needs, you cannot have disruptor budgets. You've got to overinvest proportionally. So that's my, that's my specific investment. Is it a self-interested one? Absolutely. Sure. The more the budgets grow, the more that firms like mine get hired. I didn't answer your-, your No, 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 but that, you did. I mean, I think, first of all, I appreciate the challenge. And I think that I really like, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is I feel like there's a lot of folks in the industry that need that push to move this level of thought and communication forward. I mean, today we're seeing the investment tax credit fight being led by SIA, you know, with asks of their teams, you know, for simple things like sign-on letters. One of the things we did at Clean Capital is we went through our, all of our assets, identified what districts are in, who the member was, and we're sending letters to that member, right? It was an intern-driven project, but it'll have some really important impact, we hope, on the ITC. And if all the players across the industry did that type of initiative, you know, we could really elevate into those key offices the importance of something like the investment tax credit for what it will do to grow jobs in this country and grow the sector. But I think a lot of people just think they don't have the bandwidth for a policy team or a marketing team or the fine, you know, they don't, they don't put their budget in the right place to, to yeah, make no. a global impact. Yeah, very few of them, if for very few of them, is it true they don't have the, the bandwidth? They just haven't made the, the allocation decisions. And I'll make right. another point. For a lot of our companies, there is a economy of opportunity between Marcom and public affairs. So the act of you contacting people in your professional network for this existential call-up actually gives you an opportunity that's a Marcom opportunity. You have a reason to touch prospects, customers, refresh relationships, and it's not yep. on a please buy this from me basis, right? I mean, it's yep. just, so I think we are... The, the tightest answer I can give to your what's the one thing change question is there are some basic block and tackle things that we can do with very little extra investment that would markedly improve our punching power. Here's an example. Six years ago, I spoke before the executive committee of the WEA board up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I, I suggested that we, we not build any more wind firms for several hundred million dollars without spending several tens of thousands of dollars to set up a visitor center. Why the hell would you build a, a $350 million wind farm and not build a $35,000 visitor center? It can be, it can be a double wide. And yeah. Why? Because they're all in rural areas. People in rural areas like to know how things work. They're yeah, totally. And they're interested in gear and how things work and technology. They're much more in tune with like, you know, the reality of the economy. And why aren't we leveraging that? For God's sakes, if we had a visitor center and you paid a local retired vet, you know, a de minimis amount of money to get trained on how to give a good tour and you started concentric circling out in the community, you would make this. Bring the Lions Club in, bring the Rotary in. Exactly. And then over time, guess what? You start bringing, you then merge that into your your public affairs operation, 
because you've got, and you're tracking your, your community approval ratings, you become an iconic part of that community. And if politicians know that, then the next time it's, it's a lot harder to not take the meeting on extending the production tax credit. Right. And the same thing is true with solar. But John, you one question you did ask that I didn't answer, which is very generous to be asked, is why hire us? I guess I'll I'll try to give the I'll try to give the more existential, less pitchy answer to that question. PR firms are like housing contractors. There's some good ones, and they tend to be pretty busy. And then there's a lot of ripoff artists. And the PR industry in general has it makes a lot of its money through three or four fundamental oft-told falsehoods. And so the bottom line is, if you are a clean economy company, you need to not let pixie dust get thrown in your eyes on silly promises like we've got a lot of connect connections or we've got global offices and therefore we'll deploy it all for you. That's seen that happen a million times. It's a, right. What should you hear is that's a ripoff. You get bait and switch on teams. The people selling you the service are not the teams that end up servicing you. The company does not have a deep understanding of the sector. And here's the most important thing. If you're going to hire a firm like ours, it's on you to make sure you understand what they've done in the past. That's a lot like what you need done for them. I like it. So one final question I ask everyone who's on the show, if you can go back to yourself in West Cleveland or or graduating from Ohio State and, and have a beer as your, your future self, what piece of advice would you give your, your younger self? Mm, good question. I love my favorite saying from Confucius is, those who say something cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. <laughs> right. In other words, if I could go back and coach my younger self, I would have, I would coach him to treat naysayers and down talkers as challenge issuers rather than people possessing any sort of knowledge or authority. Because there are a lot of folks along the way who said, oh, that can't be done or you can't right. do that or whatever. And, and, you know, my pluck of the Irish kicked in a little bit later than I should have, should have in the arc of my life. But, you know, now that's usually an indication of, yeah, well, let's see about that. Yeah. That's great advice. And I think this is the first time we've had Confucius quoted on the show. So Mike, I really appreciate you you joining us. You guys are doing really, really interesting work at TigerCom. And for folks that don't know, you can go to TigerCom, it's T-I-G-E-R-C-O-M-M dot U-S to learn more. Thanks so much for joining us. John, my pleasure. And thanks so much for the producers of our show, Carly Batten. And for all our listeners at experts only. We sort of welcome your feedback. Please go to cleancapital.com to get more episodes. We've got over 50 now and, and continue to sort of grow our audience. So we thank you for taking the time and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.